Albert said, inside us the dead, maybe I wouldn't feel so lonely if my body could recall those connections. There are only silences. I am bound, this place, time and space, the vow with the past is broken. Even when pregnant, my body feels like a ship lost in water, afloat, remote, solitary, and heaving with seasickness. I did not feel the mercury line, connecting those before me to their destiny. I am not capable of thinking this blood is a ripple in an ocean of our blood. I am the next wave of a tide that has been coming for a long time. This vein leads back to my bones. This is what I have learnt from the books. I am an individual, but I suspect my body remembers you all. The curve of my legs, the shape of my fingers, the face of my son. Yes, every limb, every bend. Every bone is a recollection of who has been before me, a memory of all the bodies that have been the making of me, inside us the dead. That was Inside Us the Dead by Carlo Miller, read by our guest today, Ruby McComba. Yo! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, oh, the tea is hot. The literal cup of tea there. <laughs> um, better than it being cold. That would be extremely yeah, disappointing. True, true. <laughs> um, the first question I always ask, but I never tire of it, is why did you choose that poem? I love the way that it rolls off the tongue. Mm. I Even just reading it then, I hadn't read it out loud in a long time. And it feels like your body is, is rolling like waves as you read it yeah um and even just the idea of a single body speaking to all those that have come before it I love that idea um yeah I've got so many poems that like speak to my nan um and I love poems where people are writing about those that have come before them or reimagining if they don't know the history like reimagining what those histories were that led to them and led to their to their whakapapa um I think that's really beautiful and um, yeah, just Carlos' poet, Carlos, um, poetry is is really beautiful. Mm. Um, when did you first start reading poetry? Reading, as in like reading aloud or no, reading like just reading, poetry? reading poetry? Reading, reading poetry. Um, like was it something that you picked up in school or has poetry been something in your life longer than that? Um brings up the question of what is poetry as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I think I probably was first introduced with... Uh, I first read what a lot of people would consider like page poems in school, but yeah, didn't resonate with them, kind of found English a bit tedious. Mm. Um, Do you remember any of the poems that you were... I'm going to say forced to read. Forced to read. <laughs> um, honestly, no. I I think I I loved reading the... I remember a lot more of the work that my friends were writing at the time. And I loved reading their stories. And I think being able to put people to poetry was something that I appreciated at that time. Because, yeah, like looking back now, I couldn't... I don't know what kind of poems I was reading then. Only that... 
they were just yeah they really were just like words on the page mm. um but i think i first started um like actively seeking out poems probably late 2017 early 2018 mm. um yeah mm. yeah what was going on in your life then that made you sort of like start to seek it out ah um I think I was seeking them out at the same time that I was trying to write them. Um, uh, my nan, who had a real massive role in raising me, um, was like, well, to a super, super incredible, beautiful, fierce. Um, she passed away in 2017. And I guess coming from a whānau where we didn't talk about a whole lot, it was like the only way to navigate that was through through poetry and through writing and I didn't I don't think I called it poetry at the time it was just um creating stuff for me and for my for my whanau and for anyone who wanted to read it um but I think it was like navigating that grief that led me then to into poetry but then into seeking out other poetry and yeah. how other people are telling these stories and yeah. and navigating intense emotions that you know, I was quite young then, so mm. at quite a young age. Mm. That's um, that really sort of opens up, uh, I guess, a lens as to why you chose that poem as well. Mm. Then, and yeah. that connection with your nan, mm. um, and poetry allowing you to have connections with people that have passed. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because it brings up the idea of grief as well mm. and like what the experience of grief is and how also our cultures allow us or don't allow us to grieve yeah, as well. Exactly. Um, so in a way it's like a shame that by the sounds of it you had to sort of like deal with that internally and express it on the page. Mm. But on the other hand it sounds like, I don't know, you ex ex like you managed to explore like a really beautiful gift in that way as yeah. well. I yeah. don't think I would have found poetry any other way. I, I, yeah, there was kind of no one in my <clears throat> family, sorry, who no one in my whanau are writers or interested in that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, not many creatives, I guess. And so I think kind of falling into it in that way, even though like the circumstances weren't great it's it's made me reframe a lot of things how I think about grief and how I think about joy and how I think about the preservation of those things on the page or spoken like into space and like spoken word poetry um so yeah not like a conventional way to enter poetry but I guess yeah what, is, be a great. what is a conventional exactly. way exactly <laughs> and yeah I'm like grateful for it for sure um because it means that I it was a way for me to to process that but also then you know meet the communities that are that engage in poetry and meet some incredible people so mm. yeah mm -hmm. do you remember the first time you encountered a Carlo Miller poem I think it was that poem actually mm. um I I think it was in year Maybe it would have been first year. 
it was either end of high school or when I was kind of moving into uni where I was trying to find Pacific poets and um I was yeah as again like as I said before like poets whose work I could picture the person to and and I don't know I think I was just literally googling Pacific poets mm, and then yeah. you come up you, you, there was um I think it was like the I think it's called the Pacific Poetry Archives or something mm. online and there's like a digital um record of a lot of like early 2000s poems um and so yeah it was it was captured there mm. and so I, yeah because poetry books are expensive mm. and especially like more more modern poetry books so it was those like early 2000s online copies of poems that I would just like scroll and then print off and then stick yes. on stick on the insides of journals and, oh. <laughs> and stuff um that's so romantic yeah <laughs> yeah oh <laughs> that's cute ah oh, cute little ruby but um <laughs> nah, I think I legit think that's how I how I, I found that poem um and have been obsessed with it for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a really beautiful poem. It's a really beautiful poem. Um, so you were trying to find Pacific poets. Was that mainly because you were like, I want to find more voices like mine as well? Mm. Or was it also connected to your studies? Or are those two things inextricably linked as well? <laughs> um, I think they are definitely linked. Um, trying to find voices that that spoke to being like Pacific in the diaspora, especially because mm. I feel like there's, um, and what I'm loving just like loving seeing now is a whole bunch of young Pacific poets publishing in Aotearoa, speaking to that diasporic link and speaking to the idea of like calling home, calling to the islands, calling to, um, generations that have had these really intense migration stories and carry these really intense histories. Mm. Um, and may not know their entire history. Mm. Um, so I think that idea I really wanted to lean into more. Um, and yeah, reading Pacific Poets' work, even the imagery, um, like word combinations would get, would excite me. And mm. wow, that sounds real nerdy. Like, this you, is a nerdy podcast. And like, like, there were <laughs> images allowed. that you wouldn't find in any Pakeha Poets' work. And then you'd see them on the page and go, wow, like, they they get it they mm. get it they see it um mm. yeah and i think it's also speaks to the experience i i can't speak to this but i imagine that it speaks to the experience of being a pacifica reader as well reading that because as a pakeha reader there might be word combinations that really excite someone else like i wouldn't be able to spot that mm. because i'd be like i it's not for me mm. you know mm. so i wouldn't be able to see it mm. um and I imagine that that's a unique experience to be able to read something and be like, that is written yeah. for me as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. And how affirming it is, mm. especially like if you're in the diaspora and have kind of have this really, you know, it's a... Um, and have a unique understanding of what it means to be Pacific. Um, I think, yeah being seen in poems, especially poems on the page and how, you know, 
how you know there are all the stereotypes of if you're on the you know if you're published it's this really like elitist mm. thing like if your words are on the page they mm. society says that they matter the most mm. um when we know that that's just how like western history has has captured um yeah that's how like a lot of that like white poetry has mm. been has mm. been captured um, i mean it's how western westerners captured history oh yeah and, 100%. and storytelling <laughs> yeah, yeah it's all been it's on like the page if it's not on the page it's not real and mm. that's like cornerstone part of the methods of colonialism is just mm. denying every other form of storytelling mm. <laughs> shouldn't laugh but like it's embarrassing and i don't know <laughs> you know like it's a it's a and i guess this is all storytelling communities mm. being um being a massive part of like a colonial weapon essentially because mm. um, that's what western storytelling in the pacific is um unfortunately mm. but of course when um when you read poems by and for people who aren't pakeha it's a powerful tool to, mm. can be a powerful tool to decolonize as well yeah 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 for sure i think just as our words you know come from you know these beautiful oratory cultures um yeah they can insist on they can exist in lots of different spaces and i think mm. yeah it was exciting to just to see them on the page when I hadn't seen them on the page before. Mm, mm, yeah, mm, absolutely. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your degree? Because you have completed the BA part of your studies. What mm. what did you study? I did Pacific Studies and Psychology, um, and then I'm currently trying to finish a law a law degree. All the power to you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's a bit of a drag but no I no I love it I love it and um yeah one of the actually am I I think I'm if I if slash when I graduate it'll I'll be the the first one to to graduate which is super exciting um but I think the Pacific Studies and Psychology components of my BA um speak to both like trying to understand mental health and how to support mental health and mental well-being in the communities that I hold close as well as like understanding diasporic identity mm. and how yeah crazy and confusing that can be mm. um yeah what's at the crux of pacific studies because like I think a lot of people listening might not know what that even is given that universities are colonial institutions yeah <laughs> love uh, love that note <laughs> um i that's a really good question um i don't think you can really boil it down to one thing just as you couldn't boil down I, i've heard there's european studies now which really confuses me because i'm like isn't that just <laughs> isn't that just university <laughs> isn't that just university but no apparently there's a european studies major anyway um <laughs> Yeah. yeah um <laughs> oh bless um but, <laughs> but um 
I guess a few of the 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 areas that I've studied in that have covered everything from like Pacific history, both pre-colonial and and you know with with settler colonialism as well, um, Pacific languages, um, yeah, Pacific dis- diasporic identities, which was real cool, Pacific health and well-being, um, Pacific innovation and sustainability, which was sick. What else? Yeah, I mean, it sits under BA, but really, it's it's everything. It's everything. But also, in being and trying to be everything, you know, you're you're homogenizing a incredibly vast and diverse um, community and area, Um, and languages and and histories. Hundred percent. Yeah, like I guess because Tamaki especially is incredibly Polynesian in terms of the Pacific communities that are that are here um, and you know we don't necessarily have as many um, Micronesian and Melanesian you know lecturers and academics in the space those teaching into Pacific studies are primarily Tongan Samoan and um, from the Cook Islands and so there is like a um, you know, even though it's it's Pacific studies, there is a lot of the thought is is centered in Polynesia, mm-hmm. which yeah can can be problematic, but can also be really beautiful and affirming for those who 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 do fuck a papa to to mm-hmm. Polynesia mm-hmm. or to those to those um to that Fenua. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And your law degree. Where, where where do you think you want to um, take that? I stumbled into law in my second year of uni um, after being like, nah, I, law too hard, law too scary, uh, law too pakia. Um And then, yeah, got into Te Kahui in 2020. And then with that, being kind of started to see law as a mechanism to advocate and to create change and so kind of then got the the confidence to go into it um yeah i think while the law (laughs) um a lot of people say it operates in the way that it um operates in the way that it is supposed to and that it's an inherently like colonial tool um at least in aotearoa yeah, there are ways to lead reform, lead abolition that really excite me, are ways to empower indigeneity. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the reason why I want to get into it. Yeah, well, you're working in a number of spaces, linguistic, storytelling, academic, legal, that are set up as colonial tools, but mm. you're using them counter to that. Trying. Yeah, <laughs> trying. trying. Well, it's yeah. a... It's, it's a, I want to say a huge and also like very noble pursuit. Um, Cause like, that's fucking hard. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's trying to use the system to fight against itself in a way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, quite often. And it's like, that's, that's extremely challenging. Um, but I guess that's part of what, well, the reason why you got involved in Takahui, because mm-hmm. that's part of that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what, Te Kahui is because mm. I feel like 
Most of our listeners probably never have heard of it before. <laughs> and they should. Te <laughs> yeah. um, is was quite a few things. It was conceived in early 2020, I believed, by um, Zach Devi, Eric Sawakai, and Georgia Heta. Um, yeah, all incredible, passionate writers, creatives, um, advocates who wanted to um, run creative writing programs in the correction space, so in prisons. Um, I guess the whole idea around Takahui is that everyone should have the opportunity to be creative, to understand their identity, to express for their own well-being, and there should be programs and spaces out there for people to do that in a way that feels safe and culturally grounded, um, equitable, accessible, everything like that. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, Takahui, we first started facilitating in um, the correction space in 2020. Um, and then obviously with lockdowns, the, the space has changed a lot and we've moved into community facilitation alongside corrections. Mm. Um, but yeah, kind of the 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 key aim overlaying the entire kaupapa is that um yeah poetry and storytelling shouldn't just be reserved for the elite it should be for everyone and mm. everyone should feel empowered to share their stories and to own their stories and to feel proud of their voice mm. so mm. yeah creating opportunities for that mm. i think it's quite radical because i think i think on the surface everyone would agree with that statement that everybody mm -hmm. should have access. But the reason why I perceive it to be radical is that a massive chunk of society, even people who are like in the arts space, mm. would probably be quite quick to say that people who are in corrections, like have lost certain rights and I mean like mm. I I obviously don't believe that but it's a huge part of I guess the way that we view corrections in New Zealand and in the whole western world is that when people are in that system they lose access to society and part of that is like the ability to also be like creative and expressive mm. and stuff like that. So I, that's why I think this is radical because it's completely, um, it's completely flipping that script. Mm. And I think a lot of people would probably not even consider the fact that people in corrections need access to that. And mm. it's not something that's provided not, not a, you know <laughs> like but people wouldn't think about that yeah. they're like they're housed they're fed and it's like that's mm. that's yeah. not the full scope of what people have the right to have access to yeah but we don't, even if we think about rehabilitation and what and yeah a lot of the the extent to which corrections is a space for rehabilitation is that's a whole other conversation that i'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a can of worms <laughs> that for sure. I'm not going to get into. But yeah. um, if we think about rehabilitation, and a lot of that comes back to what 
does it mean to reflect and process and look inward um creative writing relies on that it relies on reflection and so what better way to not just creative writing like storytelling in general requires reflecting to then express um so what better way to to support their rehabilitation processes um than by providing people with with space to feel and space to express um especially in a inherently colonial institution like the creations um yeah yeah um and even just going back to the idea of a disproportionate amount of our Maori and Pacific community are uh, are disproportionately represented in that in that space and you know oratory storytelling being so intrinsic to to who we are as tangata moana um yeah yeah but it's it's important it's necessary yeah yeah for sure for sure what have when when you first started doing the work with te kahui um i mean as with all of your work it's political but also personal Mm. um what was what i guess what were some of the uh, very stereotypical question but like what were some of the challenges for you Mm. like i imagine like I have a I have a friend who is a um, defense lawyer, and mm. he spends quite a lot of time in corrections and visiting um, folks there. And after working in that space for a day, he often feels quite drained just because of being in that space. Um, what was it like for you personally? Mm. Um. I think I had gone into corrections prior to starting Te Kahui um, in a very different capacity. Mm. Um, and so it was a space that I was I was familiar with, but I think it was interesting um, because I was mainly, well, because we mainly operate in one of the men's facilities. Um, I think being a, a young brown woman it was, I kind of went in feeling like I needed to have my guard up mm. and I needed to be, yeah, I felt like I needed to have my guard up. Still approaching it with the same aroha and the same passion and the same energy as I would any other space, but I definitely was cognizant of the fact that, yeah, my positionality um, in there. Um, but I think what I realized very quickly and something that I wasn't aware of prior to prior to doing that work in that space is how so many of the the Tane that we've worked with have lent into their emotions and experiences in the kaupapa yeah, in ways that I didn't wasn't necessarily anticipating. Mm. Um, and There's an element of vulnerability mm. from them. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, was something that I, it, and definitely it was not an immediate thing. Just as in any space, you want you need to 
open with whakawhanaungatanga and you need to ensure that people feel as safe as they can given the circumstances and as comfortable as they can given the circumstances. Um, I yeah, felt really blessed to hear a lot of the stories that that I've heard in that space and yeah, holding them with a lot of love and a lot of awareness of the fact that sharing these stories are not easy putting them on the page is not easy you know reading them aloud is not easy crafting them having the the mental energy to to process and craft them and you know our workshops were like a two hour two hour block you know in that time is not easy at all um for anyone so yeah, I think the <laughs> the resounding like feeling from that um, ramble is that I I because I'd approached it feeling quite initially a little bit on the defense, a little bit like I had my guard up. I had to um and yeah, how quickly that that came down and just felt really grateful um, mm. to be able to to share story mm. in ways that that felt. Um, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Testament to you also that, like, you say that, like, you felt that you had your guard up a little bit, but you also say that, like, you went in there having aroha for the space as you would any other space, you know, and yeah, that aroha was the for the people, not for, for the, the space. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, I guess, I, I guess to, to clarify, yeah. like, spaces and, like, the space of people <laughs> like not yeah, not yeah. the space being corrections as a as, as a, what it is as <laughs> what it is yeah as a thing um and like and also the space that you were creating there mm-hmm. as well um the fact that you went in with that kopapa off the bat even though you might have been like physically feeling different is probably also why you got that response from mm-hmm. people as well, because they like every, everybody can feel the intention with which somebody comes into a space, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's really clear. So like shout out yeah. to you as well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that. But um, I, yeah, I think a lot of the reason why, you know, the Rangatahi have responded to the program so well um, is because, yeah, Eric Sawakai, the co-facilitator, the first time I facilitated a workshop was in Corrections. My first ever facilitation session was in that space. Um, Whereas, yeah, they had been, they have been facilitating for for some time Mm -hmm. and can curate space um, really well. And so I think it's a a testament to, to how well they, the energy that they approach different spaces and how um, the energy they brought to that space was mm. was no different to the previous spaces they had mm. they had facilitated as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, and also just um, the the ability to 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 co facilitate is something that I <laughs> um, definitely do not take for granted. Um, yeah. I think. Um this also leads into a question that sort of like popped up for me when, when you were speaking a little bit earlier about like creating a space that is safe. Um, because I think often in, 
arts, arts facilitation, but also just like arts generally, including like theater and stuff like that. We talk about safe spaces. Mm. Um, but I guess like, what does that actually mean? What, what do you think? Yeah. What things that contribute to a safe space? I'm not asking for like a concrete answer because I'm, <laughs> it's not concrete, but like things that might contribute to a yeah. safe space. It's so vague, eh? Mm. Like, I hear it, you hear it used all the time. Mm. And often used in ways that are quite contrary to, like, what I would consider as well. Yeah. Like, oh, this is a safe space, so say whatever you want. <laughs> it's like, mm, no, that's not safe. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've heard it used. Um, I went to, like, a uni poetry seminar, and I was one of like, the coldest, most Pakia spaces ever. Um and felt really, really elitist, and I felt way out of my comfort zone. Um, and then someone was like, well, someone opened like the sharing time with it's a safe space, and then proceeded to to create something that was to to foster a space that was definitely didn't feel safe. Um, mm. But I think how I've come to understand a safe space is is one where you could sit down and feel your your chest like loosen. Um, you can attend to your to your needs, and not f- and be unapologetic about doing that. Like if you need to to get into a position that's more comfortable for you to create or to share your story, then doing that. If you need to take a moment, then doing that. If you need um, food, water, bathroom, a moment to to take a step back before you lean in, being feeling comfortable doing that. Um. Yeah, because so often, like arts presentation spaces can be, I mean, the you know the whole idea of like performance, performance art. It's like regardless of what's going on behind the curtains, you you bring and perform mm. as if you're having the best day in the world. Mm. Um, rehumanizing a space, I think. Mm. Um, the idea that a story is just as powerful on on a good day as it is on a bad day mm. um it can look like two different things but it's not it won't be devalued because you are f- human <laughs> mm. um and you're attending to your needs as, as a as a human mm. does that make it, does. <laughs> it really does it really does and i think like it uh, for me i'm thinking about this also from a classroom perspective because i used to be a teacher oh yeah and thinking about the fact that as an English teacher, I'm an arts facilitator, you know, like I ask True, students yeah. to write and share quite often, but in the classroom space and the way that that's set up, and I mean like, you know, to be fair, I have significant power over what that looks like, mm-hmm. but in the system of teaching generally in our education system, we don't tend to those needs because Mm. the students have to be in the classroom. They have to be sitting at their desk. Mm. They have to write this certain way. They Mm. have to produce for a certain assessment. And Mm. like that doesn't create a space that tends to the needs which they might have in order to feel comfortable and vulnerable enough to share things that are, um, I guess, useful is not the right word, but like, meaningful for themselves and their own storytelling because that their 
they're meeting the needs of the education system, not their own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting to me. Um, and also what you were saying about performance as well. Again, this whole like idea of <clears throat> like there being like a pinnacle of like, I, I guess like being at your peak when you, mm. when you, when you share a story or like having, having to be like at your best. Um, yeah. Again, is, is a constructed, <laughs> a yeah. very, a very much constructed, but also like we don't talk about the fact that it's constructed because it's like, a, a, I guess a format that we're used to that, that people perform mm. their, their work. Um, so, okay. Like it's, it's a, it's a, again, quite a radical definition of what it means to be safe, to really just, like, mm. <laughs> tend to people's needs as humans. Yeah. It shouldn't be radical, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's <is> crazy. <laughs> the whole idea of to be a good performer is to turn off your human. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm definitely not a – I wouldn't call myself a performer. I mean, really. I would, but um, – <laughs> But, like, or even just to to – to express art mm. just as you're sharing a story mm. um the idea that you need to turn the human off in order to to exp- to express the best mm. isn't that just like elitist and mm. isn't that mm. Feel, mm. it feels mm. cold and dehumanizing and yuck heading into some like nerdy shit but like <laughs> um it kind of makes me think about like Maslow's pyramid which I think is inherently Mm. like a western construct of like high creating a hierarchy of Mm. needs um and I feel like the narrative is that you cannot create unless you're at the pinnacle Mm. which if you this is sort of like leading into stuff that I did for my master's degree ah, as well. So like just uh, <laughs> shameless self-promo a little bit. But like if you reframe it, I looked at Te Whare Far as a, I guess, like uh, approach to need, like mm-hmm. human needs. Then creating is a need as much as other needs and those things rely on each other rather yeah. than being a hierarchy, yeah. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you if you don't look after your wairua, which is part of that the need to create, mm-hmm. <laughs> then your other needs can't be met either. And also, if you're not tending to your other needs, then you can't. Yeah, like it's all interconnected rather than hierarchical, which mm-hmm. is how we often look at art creation art performance yeah yeah even the idea of yeah as you said with the um hierarchy of needs the idea that all your basic needs are met in order for you to then you know progress. move up progress <laughs> progress up the pit <laughs> like in itself means that creating and expressing is inaccessible because going to get a certain number of people who can meet all those other needs that I guess are presented in the pyramid before 
yeah for creating yeah which i guess is also connected to the idea that people have around people in prisons and correctional facilities that what they deserve is the bottom of the pyramid which is disgusting which is yeah it's fucked absolutely fucked yeah um and people who are saying that are typically those who are so far removed and so arrogant arrogant Mm. ignorant both (laughs) arrogant and ignorant (laughs) it is the the brain buffering um (laughs) are so ignorant and arrogant that like who who are you to to even speak into the space Mm. um fuck yeah (laughs) but but i mean i think it's it's worth noting that like it's a significant portion of the population that believes these things because we we surround ourselves obviously with the bubble of people who see the world in similar ways to us Mm. and I think often I am like I meet someone who might say something like that and might be like well they're fed they I'd love to be in prison because I've got you know like they they get food for free like that kind of shit Mm. I'm always like taken aback and then I remember like that's just all the people outside my bubble who Mm. believe that shit so it's like Again, it's. I feel like it's obvious, but it's r- radical to for you to be like, yeah, no, people in prison, people in prison deserve people, people in people, just, people in prison <laughs> people. are people and deserve everything that people who aren't in prison deserve. Yeah, hundred percent. It's radical. It's radical. But it shouldn't I, it, be. It radical. shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. I should clarify. It shouldn't yeah. be. But in our current state of affairs, it is. Which is baffling. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just speaks to all the work that we need to do. Um, and that you are doing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, like. Try, trying, trying to. Kumra speaks not of its own sweetness, but like you you are doing the work you know you're not you're not doing all the work but like the work that you do with Takahui is part of that you know the the team are really really cool in that um Michelle Rahurahu Scott um Fadiso Dintue Eric and myself shout out to all shout out (laughs) to the team I don't know whether they'll listen to this (laughs) I hope I hope that they do um (laughs) Um, are all incredibly passionate, radical people. Mm. And so I think, yeah, and then we're, we're a part of an ecosystem of, of connections with, with um, like, Papa and with Just Speak and with, um, you know, other creative co-papa and, like, abolitionist co-papa um, mm. that are also passionate and radical and having these conversations and spreading awareness, which is really exciting. Mm. Um so yeah, I like to think that as a as a as a small component of a broader ecosystem, we're we're doing Tekahui is doing the work or trying to. Mm. Yeah. Mm. How has doing that work influenced your own writing? Because I mean, like for me, working with students, working with young people, influenced my writing in yeah immeasurable ways Mm. um yeah always learning always seeing things in 
in new and different ways. It, you know, just like being around people always influences your writing. So do you feel like that work has influenced your own personal writing as well? Um, I think rather than the content of my writing, it's influenced the, the, the sense of grounding that I have in my own voice. The fact that we're, you know, we talk all about, um, you know, uh, equitable expression and empowering spaces. Um, and a lot of that relies on us as creatives being self-aware and being both reflective um, and looking forward as well. Um, so I, I think it's it's just I've I've become way more confident in myself and doing the work which I didn't anticipate um, and grounded in my fucker papa you know as kind of complex and mm. <laughs> and um, all over the place as it is um, and and my own ability to tell stories I think it's the it's the performance aspect of poetry that I think I've lent more into mm. as a result of being into kahui mm. um because I've heard so many incredible people share their stories and be vulnerable. And I've always seen like performance poetry is the, the one of the pinnacles of vulnerability <laughs> mm. because there's no page to hide behind. Um, mm. And I've, yeah, I'm leaning into that a little bit more as a mm. result of doing this mahi. So yeah, mm. real grateful for that. Mm. Mm. When, cause you said before that you don't consider yourself a performer. Um, but you also say that you're leaning more into the performance side of things. It, it sounds like I'm calling you out on a contradiction. That's not really no, where I'm going with this. <laughs> it's not really where I'm going with this. I think it, more what I want to question is like, how do you navigate that for yourself? Like if you were to go up and read a poem, how do you navigate that for yourself to sort of at the same time challenge uh, I guess like existing beliefs around what it means to perform a poem mm. and how you feel right in performing a poem, you know, what feels good for you and mm. what makes you feel confident as well. Oh, that's such a, that's such a cool question. Um, <laughs> um, I think it goes back to the idea of, of, being as human as possible um so rather than framing it as like a performer framing it as a storyteller who's who's got this lived experience or got the story behind them and is literally just sharing that rather than having to put on any any, any series of, of facades to to make that palatable for other people um just as like aurangatahi and you know that we've worked with in corrections like the last thing that I'd want them to do is feel like they have to change the way that they that they talk or that they story tell to be palatable um because how disempowering is that having to like squish your story 
or squish your words as they leave your mouth into something that people will will resonate with just by virtue of you telling the story the story itself mm. holds power and that's what people should be resonating with not mm. not all the like fluffy stuff around it i'm not sure whether that made sense it does <laughs> it does it does make sense it does make sense mm. because i think like i think me as a performer i'm i'd say like because i i you know i don't have a huge performance background the only like performance training that I've had in my life is drama at high school but drama at high school very much is of I guess the school of thought of like you enter a character Mm. you enter your performance self Mm. when you perform and then afterwards you drop that and you know you leave it on the stage um and so like I think and it's something that I I think I will continue to struggle with is this ability to be completely human when for lack of a better word performing my poetry Mm. because Mm. like it requires immense vulnerability to not be Mm -hmm. your storyteller self when Mm. you're sharing you know you it's much easier to be like I'm doing this for you Mm. than to be like I'm doing this myself <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> yeah because it's confronting eh? um but i've got huge respect for performers and especially like those who who have crafted expression in ways that can evoke really really strong emotions in people mm. um yeah i mean there's you've you've probably seen and talked with on the podcast there are some incredible performance poets who who can do that um and you know you just you just leave with your jaw on the floor like Mm. so excited to to engage Mm. in story again and that's what um you know performance poetry and storytelling should all should be about being Mm. like this being continually inspired and reflective and, Mm. and expressive then um and so that is definitely a space that i want to explore more but i think um just being a, a storyteller and someone who is like sorry <laughs> this is not the first time this is not the first time that siri has mansplained something oh, on the podcast I and hope it's, it's all... days i hope it's days in the <laughs> and it's always when i have a woman as a guest on the podcast uh, as well uh, <laughs> as you were saying, to be as you, you were saying that you want to explore the performance space more, but to be a storyteller, is to just be an ex, an ex, inextricably, inexplicably. I don't know. Be very, very human. Yeah. Um. And I think for my yeah own like mental well-being but also modeling that to to the people that I share space with like being as human as possible is something I really want to model and storytelling rather mm. than performing some is a way that I can mm. I can do that mm, mm. it's very um yeah it's very vulnerable and um I think that's I think that's like a very cool approach to come into the like, I guess it's a cool value to hold as you, like, move into the performance space to be, like, 
yes, but not letting go of that sort of human mm. part of myself with that, not leaving that at the door. And um, a lot of performers can like amplify amplify that in their in their work, which I that's, that's a sweet spot. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's where I that's what I um, get excited by and wanna wanna work towards. Yeah. Um but yeah, definitely early early on that journey for sure. Mm. Um you were also mentioning earlier when we were having a conversation over our cups of tea um that you and you can say if you're if, if you don't want to talk about this but you were mentioning over our cup of tea that um there might be an anthology in the works mm. from yeah. Takahui's work oh my gosh yes um so in April last year we <laughs> yeah over a year ago um we submitted a body of work from some of the rangatahi that we've worked with in at one of the correction sites um um and those that we work with have the opportunity to tick that yes they'd, they'd want their work to be considered for anthology mm-hmm. um so we collected about oh i want to say like 50 pieces mm-hmm. um and submitted it for approval for publication um and back in april 2020 that didn't happen for various reasons and we've kind of been going back and forth a lot since then and just earlier this month we got actual actual approval for publication um which is sick um and i got the new i got the email when i was in class and just like started crying <laughs> or like you know my, my eyes got all red and welled up um mm. um because it it's really been the the combination of of so many interactions and setbacks and just it's been a very very long journey but um we've got yeah got approval to publish um an anthology um, I don't want to say like a tentative time that it would be out because that's still incredibly up in the air but um, we're in the process of sussing things like cover art at the moment sussing a launch for it which is really exciting mm. um, and I think the thing that I'm most excited about is the fact that this is the the physical publication and fingers crossed a component of the launch as well is going to be um, specifically for those who've contributed to the anthology. Mm. Um, so those who contributed and who participated in the program and had their work um, and whose work will be in the anthology um, are going to get are going to get to hold it and feel it and see it on the page. Mm. Um, yeah, see their see their stories. Um, they're going to get to see their work on the page mm. um, and for that to be celebrated um, mm. because yeah, we've got a real mix of work in the anthology, which is really exciting mm. um, and a real mix of experiences. Um, and I think for their voices to be intentionally celebrated 
is something that goes against a lot of what the corrections space says about our rangatahi who are incarcerated. Mm. Um, Hard. I mean, like, I can say this because it's me, but, like, yeah, I, I would go as far as to say that, like, the crux of what corrections is in its current state is saying that these voices shouldn't be heard mm. because that that's like behind the whole philosophy of like putting people behind bars yeah. is shutting them up right yeah. so publishing their work mm. goes directly in conflict with that mm. which is again I, I should i need a new word but it's radical you know like <laughs> <laughs> yeah just seeing people as as incredibly human um seeing that the rangatahi that will be published um have such diverse lived experiences have such rich stories are incredible storytellers um so like dismantling the idea that, that to tell a story or to perform is top of the pyramid like elite mm. you know you have to train and do this this and this in order to mm. have your story valued like no 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 you're your voice is just as valued um, and should be 100%. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so um, how what, – what happens with the – I guess with the proceeds of this book? Um, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know enough about, like, publication and, like, selling mm. books that, like – how does how's that gonna work? Because I imagine that like you'll want to give back feedback into the mm. <laughs> the loop of things. Mm. I I find it very hard to believe that you'd sell this and be like, we're gonna get rich. No, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, fortunately, uh, Penguin Random House is supporting with a lot of the publication costs mm. and with the launch costs. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, we're really really lucky in that respect. Um, and yeah, as you said, any any it's, you've only just now mentioned that it's Penguin Random House, like oh yeah, shout <laughs> out! It's huge. Yeah. It's massive that you got them to publish it. That's great. At <laughs> <laughs> um, the in terms of the proceeds, it's gonna yeah, it's gonna feed back into the co-popper. Um, whether that's supporting the the children of incarcerated peoples um, mm. and some of the co-popper that support those children mm-hmm. um or to similar um arts-based storytelling co-papa mm-hmm. um yeah the exact breakdown of where the proceeds are going to go is undecided but it will definitely be reinvesting in the idea that um storytelling and creativity should be equitable and accessible mm-hmm. yeah great cool i love that exciting that's so good exciting so, um, poem? Yeah, 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 to to finish us off, um, you can, do you want to tell us a little bit about, do you want to tell us anything about the poem that, that you, that you're sharing or do you want to just dive straight into it? Um, I'm just going to bring it up first. Um, so... I whakapapa to Rotuma, which is in between Fiji and Tuvalu, um, and, but didn't grow up around whānau who, who spoke Rotuman. 
um, too much, I think, for various reasons. Um, te Aupākia and Te Reo Pākia kind of was something, was what I grew up, grew up around. Um, so the, the poem that I am hoping to read Kōsia for, um, it speaks to the idea that language and the components of culture that language holds. Um, the time that I was writing this, it felt very much locked in the in memory in memory of of my nan. Mm. Um, um, and there were so many stories, and there are so many stories about her that I'll never know. Mm. Um, and so many stories that can only be captured in Rotuman, so I say Faka Papa to Rotuma, um, that I'll never know because I'm still learning Rotuman. Um, and so this poem was both written as a testament to her, um, but also to the idea of like how beautiful it is to be a diasporic young person on their reclamation journey um, and to be descendant dis, or oh, brain buffering <laughs> to be descended a descendant of mm. um like such power and love embodied yeah great <laughs> um so this is sefua when we sneeze we say sefua please do not burst open but poise at the floodgates that moment longer and breathe just one more time. And should we choose to honour the love we both deserve, let this be a conversation. Wait, and our words, they will play together. Watch them burst in the backseat. Kolohikai on repeat. KFC will eat and will laugh. And sip Pepsi from plastic wine glasses. And pull chicken flesh from the gaps in our smile. And my grandmother's tongue... We know love in motion, Anisioth. I love across an ocean. I am a daughter of the diaspora, but my tupuna insists on coating my tongue in a paymet's frogpehe on a Friday woven gods speak to the earth in cup ten claps. We'll practice being good descendants today. Anisioth, sometimes this love cannot cling to empty English, so we torture our tongues, tell them they... They are unworthy, trip spit and stutter between languages because this love, because this love, I heard my father's Rotuman tongue lay flaccid when his mother died. His words had no one to play with, Sefua. Her funeral was the first time I saw him burst, Sefua, please, Sefua, please. Sefua, please, Sefua, please do not burst on me. In my grandmother's tongue, we know of love and motion, Anisioff. Map our lives according to those we've ever loved. Back to the mothers for Nua. The land, the first thing they ever loved. Us, this love stretches from the Atua to Hawaii across oceans and open palms to my nan and her topper skin. I massage the knotted histories from her neck and trust have held more than just her head up. Because there are half-healed mandarins left in the fruit bowl. And there is a rosary on her pillow. And we pray... Catholicism was our first language. Isalei, we sung to the grave. Anisioff, she is a love I wish did not pass in motion. Love stumbles in different tongues. 
but the blue persists in our veins. We must not be far from the ocean now. One day, our words, they will play together again and cry together again, kneel for communion together again, Anisioth. When we sneeze, we say, Sefua, please. Do not burst, but resurface, gasping and giggling strong in yourself, your tenacious tongue. Speak and love in grandmother's tongue.